Welcome to the February 2017 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Kelly Tappenden, Editor-in-Chief of JPEN, and I'm pleased today to be joined by Dr. Darren Hyland, who is Professor of Medicine at Queen's University. He's here today to discuss his paper highlighting the 2016 research workshop, which focused on the optimal dose of protein provided to critically ill patients. How do we know when enough is enough? Welcome, Dr. Hyland. Thank you. So every year at Clinical Nutrition League, we have this long tradition of having the first day or option pre-workshop, pre-clinical nutrition starting, having this research workshop. And it's always by highly esteemed faculty, and you did the 2016 one. You chose to work on critically ill patients, as we would expect, but why was the focus on protein? How did you shape the contents of this workshop? Yeah, I think if you look across the literature, if you poll our community, you will find that there's considerable interest in establishing the value of protein, protein or amino acid administration to critically ill patients. There's some literature on the subject, but not enough so that we have conflicting data and controversial data. And so I think we were tasked with this idea of sorting through what is the literature saying here? What is the optimal dose of protein? And so I was fortunate enough to be able to tap on the shoulder a few key experts that helped us think through, well, how do we evaluate protein administration in the ICU? Is it all about mortality or should I be more considerate of the effect on the physical recovery of our patients? What about muscle? What do we know about the the impact of amino acid protein administration on muscle mass? And even moving more proximal or more basic mechanistic than that is, you know, what effect does protein amino acid administration have on whole protein balance? And so Olaf Royakers addressed that part of mechanistically what's happening with protein and amino acid administration. And Marina Mortsakis was tasked with what about the muscle and what do we know about its effect on muscle, muscle recovery. And then my colleague, Renee Stapleton, addressed sort of how we think through a broader framework for evaluating the effect on patient-centered outcomes or the patient's physical recovery. So it was a great workshop. It was well attended, I know, and and highly acclaimed. Now, when we think of just critical care, I always think back to that stress response immediately following injury and the increased protein needs that are are really demonstrated at that time. Is there anything new? Have we been able to nail down exactly how much of a response or an increase there is in protein needs? What are the factors that relate to that? I think what's new and what's exciting is the accumulating evidence using tracer studies that show the metabolic fate of exogenously administered protein or amino acid. And again, this was part of Olavarakar's presentation, which is nicely summarized in the paper, that despite the tremendous catabolic response to illness, we are seeing favorable effects, positive effects on whole protein protein balance. The limitation there is twofold. One, that doesn't mean specific to muscle. We don't know exactly at a muscle level what's happening to protein synthesis, protein catabolism, but at a whole protein balance, looks that there's a favorable effect of our exogenously administer substrates. The other limitation of that key point is, you know, we don't have a lot of data, if any data, that link a positive whole body balance, protein balance, 
with some subsequent or distal outcome. And so that was one of the, you know, the key gaps identified in the literature is we're beginning to describe the physical recovery of critically ill patients and quantify their functional recovery, both on the short and long term. But the kind of longitudinal studies where we can link whole body protein balance or even a nitrogen balance study to a more distal you know, patient-reported outcome are missing. And so we don't really know the clinical significance of, oh, so what? I gave this amino acid and it's having a favorable effect on protein balance. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because clinically where, where many individuals are going to be is limited to nitrogen balance, right? And we yes. know that nitrogen balance is going to be very useful, particularly when looked at over time. But when I reflect on the methodology for nitrogen balance, we're using factors, of course, to skin and hair loss, but n- nothing for these woobacks and, and huge losses that may not be detected in the urine. How, how is that taken into consideration in critical care? The short answer is we aren't really advocating nitrogen balance as a monitoring measurement for our exogenous substrate delivery. It's because of limitations and measurement error. I think the subject really was, oh my gosh, you know, we really need more investigation, more development for us to be able to monitor how successful are these substrates being incorporated and utilized. That's a bit of a segue into direct measures of muscle mass, where Marina Mortsakis, you know, elaborated on the emerging field, which is very interesting to us as clinicians on doing body composition analysis in critically ill patients. We're obviously trying to use tools that have been well-validated outside the ICU, such as CT imaging, but it's kind of hard to prescriptively send somebody down for body composition analysis via a CT scan. But if they have a CT scan for done for some other reasons, we can capture those CT scans and retrospectively you know, do some body composition analysis and determine skeletal muscle mass. And some of our work has than to try and validate the bedside ultrasound, which is even easier to do at the bedside by a non-ultrasonographer trained individual, such as a dietitian or a research nurse or some other practitioner. And so there's some discourse in the workshop and in the paper on CT and ultrasound as emerging technologies that help us understand you know, what effect our exogenously administered substrates might be having on muscle and then subsequently muscle function. Great. And I think clinically that's going to be far more relevant. You know, of course, using labeled amino acids will be be the research opportunity. But for, for those in the clinic, I think that this imaging is really going to be what helps them. We don't have ways to estimate, though, based on that. Do you envision that over the next few years, as we identify someone who may be sarcopenic or whose skeletal muscle is at great risk, providing protein on a basis of skeletal muscle versus body weight? It could be. It very well could be. But let me just back up and also say that, you know, one of the most important things emerging in critical care nutrition is the concept of nutritional risk, that not all ICU patients are the same or will benefit the most from exogenous substrates, and in this instance, protein or amino acid. You know, we can talk about nutric scores and other ways of identifying nutritional risk, but I feel like sarcopenic patients will be another way of codifying this patient's at risk. And therefore, uh, not just that we should dose their protein based on their skeletal mass, but rather that sarcopenic patients probably need more 
protein than non-sarcopenic patients. Now, what I just said was a hypothesis, not a statement of fact, but I think it's one of those research questions that really needs to be done for the future is do sarcopenic patients benefit more from more protein relative to non-sarcopenic patients? So, but the key here is identifying identifying them prospectively. And we know that weight and BMI are woefully inadequate in identifying you know, patients with sarcopenia. Ultrasound is beginning to enable us a little bit to identify those patients. Unfortunately, you know, we published that Validum paper in JPEN last year where we compared ultrasound to CT. Ultrasound by itself wasn't terribly predictive, but when you include other anthropometrics, age and comorbidity and BMI and sex, and the ultrasound, we begin to approximate, well, with some reasonable predictive validity, we can identify patients with sarcopenic. So now prospectively, we need to gather those patients and see if they benefit from better or more optimal protein delivery. I think looking forward that that's really fascinating, actually. And, you know, so when I propose that perhaps we'll get to a point where we will be providing protein on a basis of skeletal muscle mass, the yeah. sarcopenic, actually, their muscle mass would be inversely related to the amount of protein that we give them, right? So yeah. they would get yeah. more than yeah. just, you know, so much per kilogram like we do right now. be much more right. of, a, of a rhythm. Okay, very cool. Now, you also talked about exercise interventions. Tell us about that in the final portion of the workshop. Yeah, I guess this is one of the things I'm most excited about because if you look outside of critical illness and you're looking at it from a patient's point of view, from a point of view of optimizing recovery, from a point of view of optimizing muscle mass, muscle function, muscle strength, the literature suggests it's the combination of both nutrition, in this instance protein, and exercise that yields the best outcome for patients. And again, this is outside the ICU. So we reviewed that literature. We reviewed conceptually a framework for thinking through how we evaluate the physical recovery and the outcomes, patient-centered outcomes, and then we talked briefly about, and now I'm in a position to, to actually announce that we have NIH funding to you know, do a trial of combination therapy. So bedside cycling plus intravenous amino acids, looking at a six-minute walk test as the primary outcome at hospital discharge with other secondary outcomes that follow the patient for six months, looking at health-related quality of life and activities of daily living. So that's the NEXUS trial or the Nutrition and Exercise and Critical Illness trial that we'll be moving forward with later this year. Congratulations. That will be outstanding. I really look forward to that. And you can see when you look at this overall state, like we started off talking about, that that could have huge implications. All right. This is an excellent workshop when it comes to research goals and where we should be going in the future. For those clinicians who are fascinated by this but are really working at the bedside each day, are there any particular references or guidelines that you could direct them to to help best manage protein requirements in their critically ill patients? Well, I think the Aspen SCCM guidelines are the best reference for clinicians at this point with respect to protein dose and, and administration. If you read those guidelines, though, you'll you'll realize that there's still quite a wide range of what's being recommended. And that's because we lack data, we lack precision to know for which patient, which patient population is the best dose. So our focus here is more on research and emerging opportunities, emerging developments in the research and development space. But I would refer people to the Aspen SCCM guidelines, more details on exactly how to operationalize these concepts at the bedside. 
obviously I'm the chair of the Canadian guidelines, but just to illustrate the point about lack of evidence, we remain silent on protein dose because of this insufficient body of literature to inform us, whereas the Aspen SCCM guidelines rely on expert opinion. So I would refer you to those. All right, very good. And for those clinicians, we would also encourage them to really keep an eye on, on what the strides are made as, as these areas develop further. Dr. Halen, thank you very much for joining me today for this discussion. For our listeners, I would like to refer you to the February 2017 issue of JPEN so that you can review the details of the proceedings of the 2016 Clinical Nutrition Week Research Workshop, wherein Dr. Halen and colleagues discuss the optimal dose of protein provided to critically ill patients. How do we know when enough is enough? And for those of you going to the 2017 Clinical Nutrition Week Conference later this month, I would really encourage you to take in the research workshop. They're great, even if it's not the exact area that you're practicing in. I always find that it really is eye-opening and you can learn such a great, great deal. This year, we'll be focusing on gastric bypass and the specific role of the gut. Dr. Halen, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.